Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. This is your host, Eugene Yang. This week, we're joined by Major General Patrick Donahoe, United States Army. Major General Donahoe is the Commanding General of the U.S. Army Maneuver Center of Excellence. He previously served as the Deputy Commanding General for Operations of the 8th United States Army in the Republic of Korea, and as the Deputy Commanding General for Operations and Acting Senior Commander of 10th Mountain Division. He commanded 1st Battalion, 67th Armored Regiment, 4th Infantry Division, and deployed to Iraq to conduct counterinsurgency operations. He has also commanded the 4th Cavalry Brigade and served as a Senior Advisor to the Chief of the General Staff of the Afghan National Army. He earned his bachelor's at Villanova University and is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Command General Staff College and the Senior Service College Fellowship at Harvard University. Sir, thanks so much for being on the show today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. First question for you. What are you currently reading? Hey, so I'm, I'm, I'm reading uh, three books right now. And so one of the things, and of course, when I say reading, I'm listening to one of them on my, you know, on my iPhone as I'm on the elliptical because I'm a man of a certain age and I can't, you know, I can't run pavement, uh, you know, every day uh, or I would, I would be in a wheelchair. So, you know, so when I go to the gym, I, you know, I've got my, I've got my iPhone loaded up. Uh, with an audio book. And so I'm listening to Morris's bio of Edison, which I think is a pretty fascinating look at an innovator who was was able to take ideas about how things could be and then transition that into practical inventions that literally change the world, right? And so it kind of helps that I'm from Edison, New Jersey, where the Mendel Park Laboratory was, right? So so that's good, right? But that's what, that's what I'm listening to. And then on my, on my nightstand, I've got two books. And this is where I go to I think you've got to read for a couple of different reasons, and I'll, I'll capture that after I give you the two books, right? And so I'm, I'm reading something that plays to my strengths. So I'm reading Tank Warfare on the Eastern Front by Forzak, right? The 1941-42 Schwerpunkt one, and then he's got the, you know, 43 to 45, you know, and I think that's Red Storm, Red Tidal Wave or something. You know, it's all about how it changes from Nazis having the upper hand and the Soviets having the upper hand. But, but again, I, I know a decent amount about, you know, armor history and warfare and tanks and that stuff. But that is, that's just playing to my strength and kind of, you know, fleshing out something I already, I already kind of have an understanding of, but want to know deeper detail about, right? And I've learned some things that have been incredible, right? Just reading through that uh, portion of that book so far. And then I'm, I'm reading The Fourth Revolution. And it's all about the technological uh, impacts of the information age and what we're living through today. So again, those three books are all pretty different. I think you've got to, you got to do a couple of things. You got to read things that you might not normally read to flesh out your understanding of how of how the world has worked in the past, right? So that's kind of reading about Edison and kind of how he you know was truly an innovator and you know what drove him, et cetera. Because we're trying to do some innovative things here at the Maneuver Center of Excellence, so you know clearly not in the same class as Thomas Alva Edison, but you know okay, we're we're trying to do innovation. How did one guy do that in the past? You know, again, talked about the tank warfare piece and playing to your strengths. And then you gotta you gotta open your aperture to be a professional military practitioner. I think you've got to have a really f- fundamental understanding of the world you currently live in and the direction it's going so that you can you can apply that understanding to the broader problem of warfare today. By the way, it's the same as warfare a hundred years ago, right? that you had this incredible technological development, series of developments, and how that's going to impact warfare in the future, right? Go, go back to a Victorian-era officer, you know, in 1892, right? That's the, 
that's the year the Maxim gun makes its debut on the battlefield, right? Nine, uh, 11 years later, we'll have the first powered flight. Five years after that, we'll have the, we'll have the first Model T roll off a, an assembly line in Detroit. You got the advent of radio. You got, you got all of these technological advances. They all are civilian in nature, except for when we go to war, and then they're all military in nature. And so what are those today? By the way, you know, we, we go to war in, in France in 1914. That's 11 years into the era of powered flight. I mean, how far are we into the information age? You know, 30, 40 years, and we still don't understand how it's impacted or will impact the next conflict. And so that's kind of that's kind of my approach to reading, right? Kind of read broadly, but then to give you some depth in those individual areas. Sir, can you talk a little bit more about, you said you're trying to do some current innovations where you are. Can you just tell us about some of those and maybe some ideas you drew as you were reading and reflecting on Edison? First off, technologically, we're doing incredible work right now. We're fielding IVAS, which is a, a soldier-borne situational awareness tool that will truly revolutionize how the soldier sees uh, her environment and his ability to kind of look across and communicate with their teammates, how they'll process information, how they'll gather information, and then connect it back into the greater mesh network, right? And so going to change how the infantry squad works. You know, we're going to have the same capability for the armor crewmen. And again, how do we, how that's going to change uh, how we command and control our formations, what those formations are capable of doing. And, and I think when you look at what Edison was able to do, Edison was able to look at a problem and then devise a solution and then practically employ that solution to where it was usable in the everyday person's hands. And that's what we've got to do uh, when we're looking at the application of uh, these these technologies we're working with, right? So the technologies are are incredible, right? They're science fiction in many ways. Now we've got to make it practical so that the average soldier can maximize its its capability, right? So then you go back, not only the Edison book, but here, here's what I've learned from the armored warfare, tank warfare on the Eastern Front. Did you know that the Germans made contact with T-34s on the first day of Barbarossa? I had absolutely no idea. I thought I thought that was like a year out. I thought they rolled over BT-7s and they were they were just crushing crappy little Russian tanks. No, day one they're in contact with T-34s and KV-1s, tanks that technologically overmatched the Panzerwagen twos, threes, and a couple of fours that were that were in Barbarossa. The reason the Germans were able to roll them up first off, they fielded 500 T-34s, didn't train guys really how to operate them, so they they had a whole group of folks that had shiny new vehicles, had no idea how to operate them. The T-34 is diesel powered. The rest of the, the earlier generation of Soviet armored for, formations were gasoline powered. So logistically, they didn't have enough, they didn't have enough fuel forward for them. They didn't have enough diesel. They had all gasoline forward. And then, by the way, new 76 millimeter gun. They don't have enough ammunition forward. And then the, the supply lines were hundreds of miles long that they were going to try to resupply these formations on. And so they, get, they just get rolled up because they run out of gas, they run out of ammunition, they don't know how to fight the vehicle, right? But it's a huge wake-up call for the Germans. And so the Germans, you know, see these T-34s and KV-1s and they're like, hey, we are massively outgunned. That then drives German innovation to get after the Panther, et cetera, right? So it is critically important for us to understand that we can, right now today, we can decide 
on the best robotic combat vehicle in the world. If we don't have the right doctrine, if we don't develop uh, the logistics tail, we don't develop the organizations to maximize it, it won't matter because we'll get rolled up, right? So, you know, the Germans, you know, the Germans are making contact with T-34s on the first day of Barbarossa and they drive all the way to the gates of Moscow against an army that's got a much better series of uh, armored vehicles. It ain't the piece of kit. It's everything you wrap around it. Yeah. Yeah, something you touched on earlier, reading broadly and understanding our world, the environment we're in right now. How do we understand maneuver in the context of the information environment? So what are the similarities and differences that you see between the information environment and some of the traditional physical domains that we are already conducting warfare and we have doctrine for and have done operations in? How do we apply those lessons into the information environment and what lessons don't apply? So first off, information has always been part of warfare, right? It's a contest of human wills. Human wills are, are supported or, or degraded by stories and narratives directed to either strengthen that will or degrade that will. And so, so the information environment has always been part of warfare. You know, I go back to my own personal understanding. Of course, I, I violated, uh, don't tell anybody, but I violated OAF uh, headquarters was at the time in 2006. And we had this massive fight. Uh, on July 22nd, 2006, in the city of Musaib, where we we ended up going, uh, you know, my combined arms battalion fought a full day fight with, you know, some some number of Jay Shalmati. I'll say 700,000 Jay Shalmati. Obviously, it wasn't that many, but it seemed like a lot, right? But we we fought that whole day. I wanted to capitalize on the fact that we confirmed, you know, killing some large number of Jay Shalmati. We didn't lose a single U.S. soldier. And I, I wanted to drive a wedge between the political arm of Jay Shalmati and the Iraqi people in the city of Musaib. For me to be able to get that message approved, had to go to field marshal, whoever. You know, I had to go from the battalion level to be approved by some extremely high-level staff officer in Baghdad. I didn't have the time. So we produced just simple pamphlets or leaflets that talked about the fact that at the end of the day, and this is the surreal nature of combat in a counterinsurgency environment. That night, I was having a chicken dinner with the members of the Musaib City Council, including Thamar Thaban, who was the uh, leader of the political wing of the Jaysh al-Mahdi. I can remember telling him, I said, hey, I can do this every day. And then he said, hey, the the people who were in the streets fighting you today were, they were criminals and they were, you know, they were acting against the, the guidance of the imam and blah, blah, blah. So I used that quote. We put it out on leaflets and dumped them all over the city. The bond, the next time I saw him, said, are you trying to get me killed? And I said, well, would that be such a bad thing? That was the power of information in, in, in a Neanderthal kind of way, right? Just paper leaflets attributing this statement, which was true, to this political figure, enemy political figure, in the city we were, we were fighting. We've got, in now, in today's day and age, we have got to weaponize our ability to use the information we already have, right? So we've got to decentralize the actual messages, right? We've got to centralize themes and, and kind of approaches, but the actual progress that we make, the, the, the delivering of the messages to be, to act in the speed we need to, we, we've got to empower guys to speak and to do it. I, matter of fact, I just had this discussion today at Fort Benning because I went downstairs to our PAO shop and they're doing great work and are really proud of this 
thing that they put together. And so they they show me this video. I'm like, hey, this is great. Except this 35 seconds of video here, which depicts us yelling at privates getting off a bus as they arrive at basic training. Hey, that's exactly what we were doing last year, which we've changed with the first 100 yards that we do for the infantry and the thunder run for the armor guys. I said, so we can't, we can't have that video. We, we got to take that out. We've got we've to put in what we're doing today. And you have this discussion with folks who were supposed to be messaging, you know, on our behalf. You know, it was funny. Then I had a discussion and somebody said, well, hey, sir, that's, that's why you've got to personally approve every single message we put out. I was like, oh, my God, we, we can't do that. You, we've got to give you broad themes and then you've got to act inside that theme, right? But we've got to then have the discipline and the sensors to see what we're putting out and then to, and then to pull messages back when they when they are wrong, they don't resonate, you know, those kind of things, or just flat out working against the command. The nature of this is we've got to be we've got to be really agile and we've got to be really quick. We will have misfires. And then we've we've just gotta we gotta live with that. You know, if they're really egregious misfires, you know, we gotta counsel and, and discipline and all those kind of things. But it really is, I think, about leaders now talking about the general scope. Uh, of the messaging we want to put out and then and then have it executed violently with speed and shock effect at the more junior levels. Yes, sir. On the, on the topic of messaging, so you know, you've effectively used Twitter to engage a wide audience of soldiers and civilians. Can you describe your experience and the various conversations you've had through that platform? Yeah, so it's been it's been phenomenal. It's been really rewarding. Sometimes been frustrating. So when I first when I first got on Twitter, my, my Twitter account started in 2009. If you were to go back and look at that, I virtually send like one tweet my first like five years on the on the platform because I was just using it as a professional development tool. And, and Twitter is just radio, right? You you can tune into what you want to listen to. So you choose those folks you want to follow. There's all sorts of great professional development sites out there, Strategy Bridge. War on the Rocks. I mean, there's and then stuff from all over the world too, right? It's grounded curiosity and some guys from Australia, England. I mean, there's great richness in the professional discussion that's going on right now. It is the equivalent of the letters between Patton and Eisenhower in the 20s, put in a swirl of time where it's happening every day as opposed to every month as letters work their way back and forth, right? And so it's this incredibly rich discussion, right? So that's what I first used. Twitter to do. Then I started saying, well, hey, I actually have a hand mic and I can squeeze the hand mic and transmit as well. And so that's where I started to then engage with like-minded professionals on the platform. Then it developed into where you could you could start to use it as a directed telescope into the, your formation in the Army. You know, I was able to start following a bunch of junior non-commissioned officers, a bunch of female officers and enlisted, because that's a perspective I don't really have. And so it, it started to broaden my perspective of what experiences were like uh, for those in the Army. And so that that has been very useful to me to see the Army from different points of view. And I think any time you can see your own organization through somebody else's perspective is really beneficial. And, and Twitter is is useful for that uh, in, in many ways. And so, believe, believe it or not, so is TikTok, right? And so... Uh, you can you can see your organization differently, and it gives you an ability then to interact with those people. And so Twitter is really good for that. 
you can then interact with those folks. And I've had, I've had a series of discussions, both on the public side of the Twitter side and in direct messages with folks I would not ever have come in contact. I wouldn't have the opportunity to talk to. And that's really helpful. And so, you know, whether that's discussing the value of the armored formation with you know, Air Force officers who run the strategy bridge, and they goaded me into writing an article for their for their blog. Right? Th- those are great discussions because then there's nothing better, for, especially for a senior guy. There's nothing better than having people challenge you. You know, you've got to be able to. Def- it doesn't matter if you're a two-star general. You, you've got to be able to defend intellectually your point of view. Here's how I see this problem set. Nothing's going to make you understand your perspective better than having to defend it. And, and I'll tell you, you know. I, I'm the senior guy on my post. It's a big post. I don't get challenged a lot, but I can go to Twitter and I can get challenged every freaking day, right? Sometimes, sometimes to the point of like, all right, I got enough, right? I, I think there's great value in, in those discussions. And so, matter of fact, my Twitter feed got me the opportunity when I was in Korea last year to, I, I did a Zoom session with the British Command General Staff College. I, I wouldn't have been able to have that interaction without without Twitter. I was able as the as the maneuver center. Commanding General was able to bring in the Australian director of uh, their war college because I'd been following Mick Ryan on Twitter. He and I had a, a couple of interactions on Twitter, and uh, therefore I was able to bring him in, give him a different venue to speak to, but also then to broaden our perspective of the U.S. Army's maneuver community from what the Australians are, are thinking about. And so that's what I think the power of that platform is. Yeah, absolutely. So what are your thoughts on the future of the conventional force, what it needs to look like, how it needs to change in order to be useful for great power competition against near-peer threats? First off, we're going we're gonna to declare the tank dead again like, like we do every three years or so. The future of ground combat is going to revolve around the tank infantry team. You know, whether that tank is a version of the M1 system or another, you're going to have to maneuver heavily armored survivable platforms to gain access to close terrain uh, in the close combat fight to the enemy, to then deploy your infantry onto the ground in the presence of very, very lethal environments, machine guns, artillery, et cetera, right? So you're going to need, you're going to need protected cover for the infantrymen as they, as they move forward. And that's going to be provided uh, by the tank and the infantry fighting vehicle team. And so that's, that's dramatic. Our light infantry community is going to obviously provide significant capability in constricted terrain supported by the heavy force. We're going to operate in the medium force, you know, with strikers. And so we're going to operate in these incredibly lethal environments uh, against uh, high-end threats, whether those are Russians or Chinese or those armed and trained by them, right? That, that is that is going to happen in the future, and we've got to be ready for that. Some of the changes that you will see in the near future is we're, we're going to reestablish the division as the unit of action, right? So the BCT for the past 15 years or so has been the unit of action. We're going to go back to the division as the unit of action because we need that against high-end threats. You know, we, we can't keep an artillery battalion in reserve as we've done with every BCT having its own organic artillery. You're not going to have that, that luxury. You're going to have to control that at the, at the division level. That's uh, the same thing with reconnaissance, right? So Divardis are being re-encumbered with artillery, and we're going to reestablish divisional cav squadrons. Now, we're, we're going to remain, the brigades will retain a, 
a reconnaissance capability, a cavalry troop. It'll look very much like a regimental troop from from the mid-90s, but obviously with landing spots for robotic combat vehicle and the plethora of sensors that we can now employ that were only you know, in your mind's eye in 1996 when I commanded a divisional cab troop. And so, so that's, that's kind of where we're going. We're also going to revamp the infantry brigade combat team structure, and we're looking at, we're looking at maintaining the IBCT, but then also developing truly lethal light brigades. Kind of, if you think back to the, everything's been done before, right? So if you think back the 7th Infantry Division light concept of the, the mid-80s and go back to the the light infantry white paper in 1984. We need that capability. We need a deployable capability to get to get it forward. An IBC today has has virtually as much rolling stock as an ABCT. It takes just 200 or something sorties of a C-17 to deploy a, an IBCT. That that's not strategically nimble enough. Right? And then I think what we've got to do is we've got to fully motorize uh, some BCTs. In an IBCT, the only the only folks who walk to work are the infantry companies. Everybody else has a ride. And so we gotta we gotta get back to a motorized formation, maintain some number of the IBCT structure that we've got, and then a, a truly light but lethal uh, capability going forward. And and so that's gonna be pretty interesting. We're looking really hard at the armor brigade combat team structure and do we have the professional expertise and experience in specifically in our Bradley platforms. And so we're looking at, do we need to professionalize the Bradley crews, right? So does that become a new MOS? And then where does it reside? Does it reside on the, the infantry side or does, do we cross over that to the, to the armor side? We won't adopt the Marines, but analogous to kind of how the Marine tractor battalions uh, operate with Marine rifle battalions. And so, of course, you know, their tractors are, are tractors, right? They don't really have a lot of killing power where the, where the Bradley is, you know, an absolutely lethal uh, piece of equipment. And so will the next generation combat vehicle in that, in that regard, right? So it's an exciting time to be at Fort Benning and an exciting time to be looking at the future of the brigade and below. Right on. So can you give us uh, some quick thoughts on just how the pandemic has affected your command? Any lessons learned that might help other leaders navigate those obstacles? Yeah, I got a couple. How it's really affected... Fort Benning is always famous, and it will be again, for the social pace at Fort Benning. Because you're you're graduating some course like every day. So there's always there's always a piece of cake to eat. There's always a beer on the government dime to drink at, at 1730 as you go from OCS graduation to Bullet graduation to Master Gunner graduation to MCCC social to, you know, whatever. So none of that's going on right now. So it's, it's a really, it, for me, I, I spent three years here as a colonel. To come back where there's no social events at all is surreal. So that's that's the mundane. I think what the pandemic has has shown us is that first off, you've got to treat this as an operation. This is a military operation for military units. You you have got to make decisions early. So when I was in Korea last year, uh, one of the things we would talk about is that what is deemed you know outrageous today will be seen as insufficient tomorrow. You'll make a decision and people will be like, ah, that's crazy. Why would we do that? And then the next day you'll be like, ah, why didn't we do that? And so you've got to make you got to make hard choices early. And and by the way, this is going to shock you. They're not going to be popular. One of the first things I put out, you know, I took command at Fort Benning 17 July. I'd been I'd been trained by a general named Abrams in, in Korea about, you know, being draconian about the measures because you needed you needed to lock down the bubble and you needed everybody with your shoulder to the wheel 
fighting COVID. And that meant every day, everybody who's accessing your installation had to get up saying, how do I remain COVID free today? And so what that means is it's not just the uniformed personnel. It's everybody who has access to Fort Benning. So I published a general order, general order number five on 17 July. And for the first time, it applied to everyone accessing Fort Benning. And now, as you can imagine, that included military spouses, it included contractors, included our DA civilians. And there was a lot of this, hey, you can't discipline me. You don't have that authority. You're right. We don't. Nobody has the authority to discipline you for that. But we got the authority to say you can't come on the installation, right? And so if you can't make it to your job, there's probably implications for that because of the personal choices you're making downtown, right? So we put out can't eat in restaurants, can't go to gyms, pretty low, you know, low hanging fruit on trying to remain COVID free. And so, you know, we just opened back up restaurants and some other things downtown just recently. But as we're watching the trajectory of the disease again, you've got to make decisions based on the disease, not on your desire. And we've seen, we've seen many, many temptations to just go, man, I'm tired of this. I just want to go back to normal life. And I want to, I want to be able to go downtown and go to a bar and drink beers all night with my buddies watching, you know, watching the, the Mets not play in the World Series, right? So the challenge becomes, hey, that's your desire. But the disease tells you you can't do that or you're going you're gonna to pick this disease up and then you're going to bring it back on the installation and affect everybody. And so we're going to run through some hard choices, I think, here in the next couple of months uh, as we're watching the trajectory of it again in the United States. And so it's going to be it's going to be challenging, and nobody wants to go back. We don't want to snap back to HP Con Charlie. We as leaders have got to be ready to make those difficult calls and take all of the crap you're going to take on social media and at your dinner table at home. You just got to be ready for it. Sir, thank you so much for your brilliant insights and, and sharing with us your experiences. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Eugene, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.